When you look at the Buddha's teachings, there's a number of places where he talks about that uh, the sum total of his teachings can be summarized in terms of he teaches suffering and the end of suffering. And uh, if we look in our, in our world, uh, when we look in our own bodies, when we look in our own hearts and minds, um, for many, suffering is not that far away. Uh, there's uh, the suffering that comes from uh, physical pain, the suffering that comes from um, mental anguish. There's the suffering that comes from uh, things changing. So even just looking at a, you know, a beautiful sunrise in the morning time, or listening to a bird song, or you know, there's a there's a kind of poignancy, having a sense that that it's 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 there in time and will change. And even the, the tenderness and affection of a good friend or a, a, a deeply committed partnership, there's always the, the fragility of, of not knowing how long it's going to last or what kind of things are going to arise. So the suffering of our lives is, is characterized by um, you know, kind of the difficulties that can come with with birth and having a physical body, with getting older, with getting sick, with dying, and you know, being subject to a tremendous amount of feeling and sensitivity and not being in control over what it is that we feel. So in, in one of the, the uh, chants that we do in the morning, we talk about the, the body is not self, and feeling is not self. Perception is not self. Mental formations are not self. And sense consciousness is not self. These are the, the five aggregates or the khandhas. And yet it's our misapprehension of these that is often the cause for why there is a sense of suffering. So when we're taking the the world to be um, stable and permanent, not changing, satisfactory, and having some kind of inherent existence, then those are conditions for which our seeing is not in accordance with reality. So the, the Buddha himself was a person who lived with, before he became the Buddha and the awakened one, he was uh, somebody who had a lot of, of privilege and good fortune and uh, access to opportunity and talent and a healthy family. 
but it was his recognition that his powers and his privilege and his talent was not um, a remedy for these basic kinds of sufferings of old age, sickness, and death that really impacted him. So the, the Four Noble Truths is the, is, the, is the recognition that there is suffering in the world and that suffering is pervasive. It's, it's, it's an, uh, it can be in a lot of things that we see, both internally and externally, in terms of the kind of anguish that people can experience. And, you know, one of the things which is interesting is, is that suffering is, is sometimes independent of material acquisition and wealth. So one of the areas that I know in California is a very wealthy area. And I remember hearing that this was one of the wealthiest areas in the country, and yet it had one of the highest suicide rates in the country. And... You know, the properties that people had were um, considerably larger than uh, what most people could imagine having. And the land that they had was beautiful and had access to spectacular views. And um, the neighborhood was uh, well-appointed and well-taken care of, and there were plenty of taxes for roads and for schools. And so the the kind of basics were very much in hand, and yet the community uh, suffered enormously. And I would venture to guess, though I don't know for sure, that sometimes the greatest suffering is, is that when we have all the physical attributes of affluence, then we have this idea that we should be happy. And that idea of happiness in contrast to sometimes how we're actually feeling creates a a cognitive dissonance which is agonizing to bear with. Because if the people who have the most wealth are in this community, these people had a a lot of wealth and a lot of um, financial uh, uh, privilege, they still suffered enormously internally. They weren't able to see that the internal suffering was not um, satisfied or taken care of or uh, released by the physical wealth that they had. So that's a particular kind of hell realm when you think you're supposed to be happy and then you're not. You know, you think you're supposed to have it all together and you don't. So the, the suffering that comes from uh, the difference between the concept of happiness and the reality of happiness is also another kind of suffering. So the first noble truth is, is that there is suffering. And it's not a, a requirement or a recipe. It's just an observation that there is suffering in this world. And I think as we you know settle down and we spend some time reflecting inwardly and each of us with our own experience. You know, we have our own body, hearts, and minds that we have to come to terms with. You know, bodies that ache. And then we recognize that it's not just the bodies that ache, it's also, you know, sometimes the body is aching because of impressions and residues of feeling that isn't resolved yet. And 
And so there's a, a kind of a, a recognition of the unsatisfactoriness of unpleasant feeling. And sometimes there isn't yet the resource to be steady with it in a way where there isn't any kind of reactivity. So one navigates the territory of, of bearing with both with the patience and impatience endurance as the, you know, as the days unfold and one develops a little bit more steadiness of mind and capacity in order to just be with what is. And sometimes what is is unpleasant. So the first noble truth is, is that there is suffering. And, uh, and the second noble truth is, is that there's a cause of suffering. And so when we can look at the cause of suffering, oftentimes what's happening is, is, is that our attention is focused outwardly on the external conditions that have supported our immediate experience. You know, what's happening in the environment, what's happening with the person, what's being said, what's not being said, what the government is doing or not doing. And so we, we are habituated to looking outside. But the cause of suffering in this kind of situation is not the external conditions that have given rise to a circumstance. It's the wanting or not wanting a certain situation to be the way that it is. And so in this sense, you know, the desire for things to be otherwise is the causative agent for suffering. So when we get a sense of this, not just as an intellectual concept, but as a very profound intuition that the cause of suffering is wanting or not wanting things to be a particular way, then that gives the capacity to start opening up to the reactivity with a new kind of vigilance and interest than what we had before, particularly when we were looking at it as the outside thing, or even the inside thing, that it's my body, or it's my feeling, or it's my perception, or it's my memory, or it's the kind of it's the it's the story that's arisen around it all you know so we can think that the khandas need to change in order that the suffering disappear and that's the wrong way of looking what is needed is to recognize that the cause of suffering is not wanting what is to be as it is and so when we begin to get a feeling for that in a very profound way, then it gives us the courage to be present with the wanting and the not wanting. And so in that way, it gives us the ability and the interest to start investigating what's actually happening at the level of body, what's happening at the level of feeling, what's happening at the level of perception, what's happening at the level of mental formations and sense consciousness that is triggering this wanting and not wanting. And so then wanting and not wanting becomes then the object of meditation. And as we're able to be present with wanting and not wanting, then in that there's more spaciousness that can arise. And as the spaciousness around wanting and not wanting arises, then right there the wanting and not wanting are no longer fueled, they're not fed, they're not believed in, they're not battled with. They're not engaged with. 
and so it begins to subside. So right exactly where the suffering is arising, precisely there, and no other place, is where the end of suffering is also experienced. So the third noble truth is is that there's a cessation of suffering. And that cessation of suffering we experience on two different levels. One is, is that the ending of wishing things to be otherwise. And then the other cessation of suffering is when the condition which stimulated the desire for it to be otherwise also fades away. So in the same way, when we're looking at a, um, an object, we can focus on the object or we can begin to get a sense of the space around the object. The space around the object is not colored or tainted or affected by the object. And so right in the middle of, of suffering, there's a kind of perfection that we can experience as our minds releases grasping and releases the wish that something be otherwise. And so the the perfection is not that it goes according to my wishes or it's according to my sense of how it's supposed to be. The perfection is learning to shift one's focus of attention from the duality of liking and disliking and right and wrong and, and good and bad to the knowing of what is present. And so in this sense, one also can see that, you know, the recognition of samsara or the cycle of suffering is also um, co-emergent or co-dependent on the experience and the realization of Nibbana. So samsara and Nibbana are not in two separate realms. They're actually coexisting in the same spot. And so in this way, you know, as we get a little bit more experience and a little better capacity with bringing our attention into that which we find difficult and unpleasant and frightening and anxiety-producing, and resting our attention gently there, then it's right there where we open up an experience of fearlessness and a peacefulness and a spaciousness and an open-heartedness. So the fourth of the noble truths is the, is the path that leads to the end of cessation. And this has to do with cultivating right view and right thought and right action, right speech, right livelihood, right concentration and right mindfulness. And so again, you know, the path is not a kind of mystical path that, that one uh, just evaporates into some kind of etheric realm and realizes it's rooted and grounded in some very practical and tangible things in terms of how we act and how we live and how we speak and the kind of things that we think about, the way we think about them, and our sense of conviction where we place that. 
So all of these support a sense of being able to practice in a way that is conducive towards liberation. And so again, it ties back to a sense of living with integrity, having a clear sense of, of uh, moral impeccability, understanding the value of living with generosity, understanding the importance of having a livelihood where it's not conflicting with one's basic sense of ethics, understanding how one's own actions have a very significant effect on one's own ability to concentrate or not, understanding our ability to let our minds focus on an object. So concentration is the ability to pick something up and hold it there. And as we are able to do that, then it helps support our ability to sustain mindfulness with a particular object or theme or changing themes of objects. So all of these things go together. The Four Noble Truths support one another. They're not just sequential, they're also cyclical. And the cyclical uh, realization of the Four Noble Truths is something that we can practice in the present moment. So at any moment, we can look at where they're suffering. And we can look at where they're suffering in any of the khandhas. Is there suffering in the body? Is there suffering in feeling? Is there suffering in perception? Is there suffering in some of the uh, the story or the associations or the formations that are connected to perception? And is it possible to get a feeling for the kind of impingement or impacting experience that can happen with, with sense consciousness, with just being alive and having all of this stuff happening to us? So suffering can be investigated as a as a like a present moment practice. One can use this as a practice in itself. Where is the suffering? And then begin to hone one's attention towards well, where's the cause of suffering? You know, where is the wanting and not wanting here? And so that will bring one's attention to one's resistance to being with what is. Or wanting what is to stay. And right there is the place where it can release. And then in the releasing, then it liberates the energy to focus on the conditions that are needed in order to support the path, to keep the path uh, supportive and working in a way that continues to allow this whole mind-body system to move more towards that which is truthful and in accordance with the Four Noble Truths and moving away from that which is less truthful and discordant with the Four Noble Truths. So one of the ways in which we can see that is, is, is that, you know, the, one of the ways the Buddha's teaching is described is it goes against the stream. It cuts against the normal tendencies of the way we are conditioned and our society conditions us to look at things. So we are conditioned to, to regard things in terms of their permanence, in terms of their beauty, in terms of their satisfactoriness, in terms of their having some kind of inherent existence. 
And yet when we look, we can see that this is actually a conditioned response rather than in relationship to how it actually is. You know, I went up this evening and I, I sat on the rocks and the rocks, my goodness, these are wonderful rocks. And rocks really feel strong and steady and stable, especially the rock I was lying on. It was huge, you know, and it was perfect because I got this nice kind of bedside resting platform where I was just got the evening sun. And I love the rocks because I can really relax into them and they're very supportive. They're very generous and they're very supportive. So there's a feeling of, well, these are really solid, you know. But I know that these rocks connected to the Rocky Mountains, this is the third set of Rocky Mountains. The first set is still, there's a bit of the residue of the first set of the Rocky Mountains that's near my hermitage, it's the Garden of the Gods, is the remnants of the first Rocky Mountains. We're now on the third Rocky Mountains. So we have an idea that, well, you know, mountains, they last, you know. They're there. They're solid. But it's our perception, and our perception is not actually accurate. And so if we expand time long enough, we can just see that, you know, the mountain ranges come and go. And they have done us several times. You know, to be on the third set is already a few versions, you know. So our sense of things is actually not in accordance with how it actually is. And that then causes problems in terms of the way that we relate to our life. Uh, So we take ourselves to be a permanent, fixed person. And yet when we look at it, where do you find the permanent, fixed person? Is it in your body? Is it in your feelings? Is it in your moods, emotions, in your perceptions? Is it in the stories you tell and the values you hold? What is not changing? So we take ourselves to be here, permanent, fixed, and unchanging. And the reality is, is there isn't anything, there's no, there's no fixed, unchanging thing to be found. And there isn't any fixed, unchanging thing to be found in anything. Not just in me, but, you know, in anything. You know, if you look at this, you know, is this a bell? Is this a bowl? Is this a stand? Is this a weapon? You know, it depends on the way you're using it. It doesn't have a fixed existence. The existence is conditioned dependent on how it's being used and our associations with it. And then if you look at this with a kind of an electron microscope, you see that it's not actually shiny and smooth on the outside. It's got major crevices and cracks. And then if you look at it in another way, you can see, well, actually what's happening is is that it's mostly space and there's electrons vibrating around. So our perception is actually not in accordance with reality. And as a result of that, we tend to think of this as solid. And this is a bowl. You know, because that's the way I'm used to looking at it. So part of the whole experience with understanding suffering and the end of suffering is coming into right relationship with ourselves and everything around us. 
in the sense of being able to see things for how they actually are rather than how we think they should be. And I think that's part of where the whole concept of forgiveness is really useful. Because in forgiveness, you know, we've taken ourselves to be somebody, we've, we've got a sense of how things are supposed to be, and then oftentimes reality is not in accordance with that. And so a forgiveness is the willingness or the gesture to let go of what we think it's supposed to be. Let go of any sense of holding on to uh, bad feelings or hurt feelings or guilt feelings or grudge feelings because there's been a discord between what we've experienced and how we think it should be. And, you know, one of the, in the evening chanting here, which we haven't yet done, you know, as a part of a monastery culture, every evening we, we ask forgiveness to the Buddha and the Dhamma and the Sangha. If there's anything that we have done by body, speech, or mind that is out of accordance with the Dhamma, we ask forgiveness. And even though in the chanting, you know, whether we actually are bringing the full power of our hearts to that quality of forgiveness, you know, when you do something regular, it takes a lot of of, um, clarity to make it alive and bright. Yet what is, what is enacted every evening is a, is a willingness to ask forgiveness and to come back to that place of, of, of letting go. Now, forgiveness is not a magic wand any more than anything else is a magic wand. We can't go voop, voop, and it's gone. But with forgiveness, what can happen is that we can begin to bring forward the conditions that are supportive of letting go. So there's all kinds of things that are worthy of forgiveness. Holding uh, harmful attitudes about ourselves, Holding harmful attitudes about another person. Deep experiences of hurt or betrayal. You know, sometimes... um, just the kind of the human vicissitudes of people getting sick is so uh, disturbing that sometimes it's, res- it's, it's helpful to respond to that with a sense of forgiveness. You know? It's not that it's anybody's fault. Nobody has done it intentionally. But the whole way that the mind-body system contracts around some of those things, sometimes that the openness, the willingness to forgive can be a useful way of being able to open up to the magnitude of the distress and allow it to begin to, to release. Now, in a situation where there's a deep betrayal of trust, it's not easy to forgive. Because forgiving does not mean condoning another person's behavior. And it doesn't automatically mean that the trust is going to be reinstated. And so if trust has been broken or betrayed or transgressed repeatedly, One can make the gesture of forgiveness, but it's also really important that one takes care that one is not putting oneself in a position to be hurt or harmed. So there's absolutely no value in holding on to anger or animosity. 
It doesn't serve oneself good at all. In fact, it's a little bit like trying to hurt another person by stabbing them through a knife through your own stomach, you know? It's like it hurts a lot here first, and it usually doesn't even land there, you know? So when we recognize the kind of ways that our own system rots when we're angry or hurt or um, can't trust, then it's in our own best interest to begin to release that stuff because that's the stuff that gives us heart problems and cancer and all kinds of other things, insomnia. But the idea to forgive is completely different than the reality of what is actually needed to forgive. And sometimes what's helpful is to look at things from a much, much bigger picture. You know, in my in my situation, I've just recently come out of England, and that has not been an easy situation. It wasn't an easy situation that I was in. Leaving was not easy. And it's been also difficult being here and watching what has happened since I've been out in terms of the kind of things that, you know, it's hard to wrap one's mind around. What's going on in the community in England is just, it's difficult to make sense out of. And I could feel myself, it was kind of like a gripping. You know, it was hard for me to come to terms with the whole picture. You know, the, some of the things that individuals did and some of the way the group responded and all the rest of it. It was like, you know, this should not be like this. But no matter how much I think it should not be like this, the reality is, is this is actually the way that it is. And then when I step back several more steps and look at it from a much bigger picture, I can see, oh, this is the cause and effect that happens when these bunches of conditions are together in these arrangements. And this is just the way it's unfolding according to that. You know, these are the choices that people make as the result of the conditioning that they have. And so when I am able to see it like that, then there's a kind of peacefulness of recognizing that this is unfolding according to its own nature, even if its nature is different from what I think is a good nature or the right nature or nature that I would hope would be. But it means that I can see it without being in conflict. And that's lovely not to be able to be in conflict, even though there's a sadness So the nature of um, the khandhas, form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness, ends up being the kind of constituents around which we form our sense of self. You know, we're identified with our body. We know our feeling. Our perceptions are familiar to us. The kind of things that are associated with it are ones that we are Uh, used to having since consciousness is something that allows this whole thing to come together and yet one of the things that we are constantly having to navigate is when our concept about ourself is somehow out of sync with the reality of ourself I was I was in England a while ago and it was raining 
and the rain was falling. We could feel it and we could see our clothes getting wet. The rain was falling. And the person I was with looked up and said, it can't be raining, there's no clouds. (laughs) And we do this to ourselves all the time. I can't be feeling this way because I'm not that kind of a person. And so our concept of who we are then causes a dissonance in terms of our capacity to meet what is actually present. And that can happen in a huge variety of ways. And so then we need to navigate, well, what are we actually more connected to or invested in? The concept of how it's supposed to be? or the reality of what's actually happening. Now, one of the ways this works has to do with the nature of um, groups and peer pressure. So, a group will form, and when it forms, one of the things that it does as it is forming is create an identity of who belongs in this group and what it means to be part of this group. And there's a lot of value in being part of a group in terms of the kind of support and friendship and kinship. And, you know, it's oftentimes easier for a number of people to do something than to try and figure out how to do it by oneself. And then sometimes things happen where there are differences of opinion or a sense of what's going on is no longer what feels supportive. And so then one's in a conflict between negotiating one's own personal sense and dealing with the consequences of what might happen if one speaks about it in the group. And so then one has to figure out, well, what are one's priorities? And, you know, how do you make a decision like that? And what are the consequences? And there are examples of people who have done things in that way which have been very inspiring. You know, so um, people have a sense of a, of a kind of a deeper a commitment to something that's bigger than the group that they're part of. And that gives them a conviction to move against the stream of what is expected or what the group is going along with. And, you know, you can see examples of that in Mandela and... Gandhi and Rosa Parks, of people whose their conviction of standing by their own sense of, of righteousness or truthfulness was uh, so strong that it, it, it allowed them to do things that had tremendous consequences and ended up creating quite a shift in the society that they were involved in at that time. 
So in that sense, their, their identity is not bound up with what other people are thinking of them. Their strength is coming from resting in their conviction about doing what's right. You know, so when Gandhi was a, a lawyer in South Africa and they had some kind of a horrendous law that um, basically subjugated the Indian people and uh, there was a terrible consequence for rebelling against it, his, his conscience told him that if he were to follow that law, it would be worse than the consequences of going against it. And so he, he didn't follow the law. He burned it and was beaten very badly. But the beating was something he was prepared to endure because he was congruent with his values. So in this kind of a situation, a person is not identified with physical pleasure. That's not the thing that they're interested in. Even their physical safety is not as important as being true to what their convictions are asking of them. And when you have a person who's willing to do that, then you have a kind of fearlessness emerging independent about whether or not they feel frightened. They're willing to act in a way which is uh, uh, possibly inviting personal danger and risk. But because they're clear that it's congruent with their values, they're prepared to do it. And so most, most of us, most of the time, we move towards pleasure and we move away from pain. We move towards safety and we move away from insecurity. But in this kind of a situation, a person's conviction is so strong that it doesn't matter what the consequences are. They do what's right and they're prepared to take the consequences, even if it means physical pain or broken bones or death. And so in this way, when a person is able to train their mind so that they are aligned with principles that support that kind of conviction, what you have are, are, are warriors of truth that are willing to stand up to the truth no matter what anybody around them is saying. I find it very inspiring. So in some ways, that's what we are practicing to do, to be warriors of the truth. Where we're cutting across the kind of, uh, the normal way of looking at things. We're staying with stuff that's difficult. We're moving into all the things that most of us would like to run away from. And we're doing it in order that our minds and bodies can align with a truth which is not so transitory fragile. Something that has more meaning in it. Something that has more sustenance. And so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a useful question to ask. You know, why, why practice? Why do this? 
And yet, I can't answer for you that question. But what I can say from my own experience is, is that the, the kinds of happiness that one experiences from practice is a very different kind of happiness that one experiences from following pleasure and moving away from unpleasant experiences. You know, for one, the whole world of the senses becomes more alive. You know, one feels things more deeply. So one can appreciate pleasure. One can appreciate the colors of the sunset and the sound of the birds and the trees coming into leaf and the magnificence and majesty of the rocks. You know, and the movement of the water. Because one's mind is not so preoccupied and distracted by all of the stuff that's going on, we actually has the capacity to notice it. You know, one can feel the fragrances during the course of the day as the sun warms the earth and the flowers begin to fill the air with their, with their aroma and be nourished by that. And so that is a happiness that is one of the results of practicing with the Four Noble Truths. There's another happiness that comes when we're able to allow the heart to open and to begin to feel the qualities of, of, of kindness, of metta, of compassion, where we're able to feel suffering, our own and others, and the tenderness of vulnerability that comes as we move towards it rather than our fear of it. And just the joy of experiencing other people's joy. You know, listening to the children laugh, and it brings delight. You know. But also there's a kind of peacefulness that comes when there's an equanimity in being able to see things without going up with the ups and down with the downs and round and round with the round and rounds, you know of just allowing all of this stuff to happen and finding a place where it can all happen. You know, I don't have to engage in the same movement as what's happening around me. But the real happiness, you know, the real happiness is this ability to allow attention to rest in something to to be able to experience the perfection in every moment. In addition to being able to see where there is suffering, to register the non-suffering. To be able to see that there is peace, that there is non-clinging, there's non-aversion, And the kind of that non-clinging and non-aversion is not dependent on people being a certain way or the world being a perfect way, a certain way, or the flowers singing. It's, It's the result of letting go. And it's like that that is a a kind of, of peace or a kind of happiness which is um, it's connected to the world but not dependent on it.
So then as we are working with the things that we have to work with, you know, a body that has physical pain, minds that have mental pain, you know, the process of getting older and eventually as our bodies are going through a dying process, where we're observing somebody that we know and love who's experiencing either the possibility of these challenges or, you know. There's a peacefulness which is present that helps us navigate the territory of what emerges. And so it's for each of us to decide, you know, what do we want to do with our lives and what we value, how we want to spend our time and energy, what's important. What kind of happinesses are the ones that really nourish? And what brings us the most sense of confidence in the way that we live our life? So I hope this answered your questions. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.